Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to enhance physical and mental well-being and encourage community. And what I mean by encourage community is that I believe that human beings are friendly tribal animals. And when we associate with one another in small enough groups whereby we know each other by face, And hopefully by name, we are collaborative, we're cooperative, we hang out together, we have good times, and we make life better. But at the same time, we must be mindful of a painful reality, which is that there's a very small percentage of us, less than 5%, who are avaricious, dangerous predators who would rule us if they could. And it's part of our job to make certain that they don't rule us, that we remain as citizens and never again become subjects. In the words of Thomas Jefferson, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, we have my esteemed colleague, Gemma Richards, coming to us all the way from the United Kingdom, where she has a broadcast called Love This Food Thing. Don't you like the title? Welcome to Mind, Body, Health and Politics, Gemma. Thank you so much, Richard. It's a joy to be here. I loved your introduction. I was thinking about that very, well, those themes today about how we are innately good, apart from a few. Apart from a few. Yeah. They're a very dangerous few. I mean, the danger I mean, that they present to the rest of us is it's so strong that I think most of us don't even want to come to grips with it. I think you might be right. I just, particularly at the moment, I think that the way forward is to be very open, communicate more, reach out, encourage notions of community, be part of a community and not to kind of shut down and retract and diminish ourselves, you know? It's so easy to do that, particularly with the media and the news and what you listen to. And you just think, oh, it's a terrible place. It's terrible out there. No, it isn't. It's beautiful. But we all have a responsibility and we have to step up. Yes. Part of our talk today, Gemma, is going to be on the place of nutrition in health and healing. Okay. And And I'm told that you have a personal story to tell about how you came into this field of nutrition as a result of events in your own life. Is that accurate? Yes. I would say that I'm not in a field of nutrition. I have a podcast which asks the question, food, friend or foe, and then we pivot around that conversation or that question the conversation then unfolds. And so I would say that I'm not a nutritionist, I'm not a psychotherapist, I'm not a psychologist, but I did have, or I suffered from eating disorders for years. And I've been out of the other side for a long time. I'm fully recovered. And I decided, it was a mistake really, but I decided to open up the conversation and see how other people manage this fundamental relationship, their relationship with food. So we're now in season five. So I've had probably had about 45 conversations with people that I've, I've met a few of them, but not really met about how food, how they behave with food and how it affects their life. Well, we have a lot in common then, Gemma, because one of my specialties as a doctor of clinical psychology has been chemical dependence. And I came into the field of chemical dependence due to my own issues with food 
and with eating. And I've come to consider that overdrugging, alcohol, eating, gambling, spending, overspending, that all these overs are all what I'm calling impulse control disorders. We are unable to control at certain points in our lives our attraction to whether it's gambling or drugs or food or whatever. And so th these, uh, these are all impulse control disorders, and mine was in the area of eating. So Gemma, the, the, the Richard Miller you're looking at now is uh, 200 pounds, six foot five, but at one point I weighed 300 pounds. Wow. So 50% more. So I was going to ask you a question. I was going to ask you if you chose to stop eating or it was because of something else that was going on in your life. I, what I chose to do was go into psychological treatment and get help for what was driving the lack of control and what, you know, what was behind it. So I did a combination of things, which I later used in my chemical dependency treatment, which was I treated both the symptom, which was the overeating, but I also looked into what was the cause, what was driving, what was the pain, what was the trauma, what was the you know, what was the, the purpose? What was I serving by letting myself be out of control and overeating? That's the important bit for me. That's what the that's what I try and get at in our in the conversations that I have on the podcast. And certainly from my own experience, it's to do with how you feel about yourself and your place in the world and how, you know, when you put your head on the pillow at nighttime, it's just you, isn't it? Yes. And I think that the, the, the food food becomes diabolized or demonized and your body becomes the battleground. I think it's a very, um, I think food disorders, when they are disorders, I think they're almost like a kind of easy, an easy way to see someone's distress or to manifest your distress physically. It can take some unpicking to, 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 yeah, to move away from them. Yes, you're absolutely right, Gemma. When you overeat, the whole world knows it. You can, you, can, you can hide alcoholism to a certain extent or drug addiction. You can even mm -hmm. hide overgambling and overspending to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. But you can't hide overeating because you're walking around broadcasting it all the time. I think overeating is more to do with protection. I think undereating and restricting food, I'm being general here, is to do with control. And I think eating and then purging, let's use myself as an example, was very much to do with um, quite lofty ideals, really, like uh, redemption and renewal and transformation. So I would overeat, I'd binge, feeling completely out of control and satisfying my need. And then I would be unable to, to bear the feelings of A, being in my body, B, being full and having failed and given in because I'd given in to my need. And then I'd have to get rid of it. It was unthinkable not to get rid of it. And in the getting rid of the food... I would have a moment, a second, a minute maybe of feeling born again. That's why I say it was a redemption. But soon enough, when I then began to feel hungry again, all the feelings would start up again. I'm trying to get, you know, sort of get a sense of this, what, this continuous terrifying it must have been overeating and then purging. I would either eat or no, I would overeat, be sick, purge, and then I would starve. So I went from states of anorexia and what would, you would now talk about. This is a while ago, you know, when people didn't talk about eating disorders in the same way. So I would be either anorexic and lose a lot of weight and restrict my food and not eat for ages, which makes you feel fantastic because you feel omnipotent. 
you're controlling everything, you feel disconnected, disembodied. And then at some point you're going to have to eat or not, which is another problem. And then I would eat and, and yeah, and I would get rid of it. And that went on for years. And it's, yeah, it's like an addiction. I was addicted to the ritual. I was addicted to the feelings. And when I first started behaving like that, I really thought I'd found a solution. And I think for a while it was a solution. It did work. But then, of course, it was my body and my body didn't like it. And then I got sicker and mentally I got more and more unwell. So then it wasn't a solution. Then it was an addiction and and a trap. And um, yeah, then it just sort of spiraled downhill. But it is terrifying. You're absolutely right. But I don't think you let yourself feel the fear when you're doing it. I think that happens possibly sometimes, which pivoted me to get better. And then later I'd look back and just feel, I, if I go there now, horrified, horrified at what I would do. And yeah, it's desolation. That's the word, it's desolation. Did you have a moment as I did, whereby somehow it all came right in my face and I realized it was time that I better do something about it? Did you have such a moment or how did you transition into changing your patterns in your life? I did. I had a few moments. Um, I, I did have one moment. And I also, before I tell you, I'd also like to say that if we were talking tomorrow, I might remember things differently. But this is what I remember today. Because um, a lot of it I can't really recall. I must have been, I think in my early 30s, and I think I broke down in front of my mum and I was very keen on telling my family that I was fine. I was very defensive. I didn't want anyone to know what was going on. Everyone knew what was going on, but no one could talk about it. And I broke down in front of her and admitted that I was absolutely exhausted and that I couldn't continue. And I, all I can remember was it was in our kitchen. I just remember the our old um kitchen wooden table and she it was the first time I'd sort of let her in a little bit if you like I wasn't working I was pretending that I wanted to be an actress but I was waitressing and cleaning they're kind of the only jobs I could really manage and um and she paid for me to go and see a therapist I'd seen people before but this time I went with the right intention that was that was a moment when I first started my sort of the first initial bout of intense therapy and I made a commitment and it, my, my sort of secret was out, you know, and I had therapy three times a week, but it didn't shift. I didn't shift until really a few years later, although incrementally it happens, doesn't it? And you realize that things are maybe a little bit better or you feel a little bit differently. But I was also, when I went into therapy, I was incredibly resistant. I think what happened in answer to your question is I just became fed up with my behavior. I was exhausted tired. All my friends were having a great life, seeming to do very well. I wasn't going anywhere. I just thought, I can't do this. And then, ah, uh, that's right. I'm remembering now. Um, I had, a, I had a flat. I got a flat from the government. And for the first time I was living on my own because I'd always had a flatmate. And I got the flat because I was so sick. Um, I don't think, I think I lived in one room in that flat for about a year and my stuff was everywhere and there were clothes piled up on the tables more tables. And, but I really had to sit with myself and it was horrendous that I'm sort of, so I'm going to say from my early thirties 
to my maybe my sort of mid thirties, I stayed with this one therapist and um, she kind of got me back on my feet. And then I went to see someone else and that was a whole, whole different ball game. So I sort of stopped and started because I needed to, to live a bit and then I'd have another block of therapy. And I stayed with that, that psychotherapist for about, I don't know, eight, nine years. But that was the moment when I just let my mum in a little bit. So we both have benefited a great deal from psychotherapy. And, yeah. and after having both dealt with the, what I call a, an impulse control disorder, some would call it a, a, an eating disorder, but it, mm. but it's certainly, we were both out of order. There's no question about that. <laughs> <laughs> and yes. and it's it's a tribute to I'm you know I'm pleased it's a tribute to my profession that psychotherapy you know helped both of us um I can tell you that my bout with this was um close to 60 years ago and while I was in graduate school and I feel like I'm still dealing with it in some way not necessarily large Every single day, I'm mindful. I find myself mindful uh, of the situation. Is that true in your case? Um, or is yeah, it behind it, you? No, I'm not. This is the thing, though. I'm not sure that it's about something being behind you. I might like to say yes. I think it's about incorporating it into one system. So depending on what's happening in my life, um, yeah, I still have vestiges of it. Like... um. I'm thinking about ripples on a pond or, you know, the resonance of something. I mean, for instance, there are certain foods that I choose not to eat. I have a mainly plant-based diet. My reasons for not eating them aren't because I'm restricting my food. They're ethical. But I don't think, because it is like a trauma, I don't think it it's behind you. I think it gets incorporated and held within your system. Mm -hmm. And I think that you put your arms around it, whatever it is, and you hold it because it's you. It's very difficult to talk about, isn't it? Because it's kind of conceptual. But and and who's to know? Something might happen to me tomorrow that really knocks me for six, and I'm, I'm I might respond in an in an in an old way with an old habit. But and also just to do with the psyche, you know, your consciousness, your subconscious. How do you know how many more layers there are? If there are layers, now I'm thinking of a delicious pastry somewhere. But yeah, I think I feel very well. <laughs> Yeah, a meal foy. I feel very well. I look after myself. Um, yeah, so I think it's just, it's within me. I'm laughing. Does that answer your question? Yeah, you did. And I'm laughing because you used the word layers and then you thought of a pastry. And my mind <laughs> my, my mind works that way as well. <laughs> and, and, and my big nemesis, by the way, uh, are carbohydrates. When I when I would pig out, or if I ever have a, mi a minor relapse, it's about things like bread. Uh, that's what I go wild on, pita bread, big loaves of bread and so on. I've actually been in situations in my life where I go to the bakery to buy a loaf of bread for my family, and I've eaten the whole loaf by the time I get back to the house. Uh, oh, yeah. Because, because of being out of control. And now, you know, I, I have certain idiosyncrasies such as I weigh myself almost every day. And I know I do that out of a certain lingering fear that I might have somehow, without realizing it, let myself go out of control again. I don't weigh myself. I haven't got on scales for years. And if I have to, at a, a doctor or something, I, I turn away. But I just want to say something about the bread. Bread is. Every culture has a carbohydrate. 
don't they? You know, Asian cultures have rice, but and other cultures have bread, be it leavened, unleavened. And bread is, it is the, like the healer. And I think if you want to overeat and you want to feel satiated and comforted, I don't know if you want to feel full or if one does, you're going to eat bread because it's going to be like a sponge and it's going to be like a plaster and it's just wonderful to chew and eat and it's sensual. I think it's really normal. Well, I agree with you that it's it's become normal, but I think the origin of it is political because the things that you've mentioned, the bread, the rice, the tortillas in Mexico, the pan, the nan, I think mm. these are all things that the elites fed to the masses of poor people to keep them alive and happy because it's the cheapest form of food. But it's not necessarily the best form of food for you because all of these carbohydrates that we've mentioned have very little protein in them. And also religion, because there was all sorts of snobbery, wasn't there, within the church many years ago about who ate leavened bread, unleavened bread, where your grain came from, what the shape of your bread was. Point well taken. Religion rearing its head again. Yeah, 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 yeah. So let's share some stories with each other about okay. about what we eat. You mentioned that you're plant-based. I'm also very plant-based, uh, in part for health reasons, in part for political reasons. What's, what's your thinking on being plant-based, that, that you select that as a, new, as a plan? Because... It's about causing as little suffering as possible. And if I'm eating, I haven't eaten meat. I'm 56. I haven't eaten meat since I was 18. That happened to kind of dovetail with my eating disorder. But it was a very clear decision that I made not to eat meat. And it was an ethical and a moral decision. And then later I tried all sorts of restrictive diets. And you might have said, oh, I would say I'm a vegan. But I wasn't actually a vegan. I was, but I was restricting my diet because I didn't want to take in the calories. And it was easier to manage. But now I'm mainly plant-based. Sometimes I eat mussels. I might eat the odd egg because, of, because I don't want any part of the industry. I don't want any part of the dairy industry. I don't want any part of the meat industry and those byproduct industries. And I think it is the lesser cruel way to eat and to live in this world. And I just think about the fear of animals and mass farming and intensive farming and how much fear is generated. And you know, now we shouldn't be eating dairy and meat because we're trying to look after our planet and it's not working. But it's it's ethical and it's moral. And so in that way, yes, it is political. In addition to what you're saying, I was influenced recently when I did a interview here on Mind, Body, Health and Politics with the world's foremost oceanographer named Sylvia Earle. Mm -hmm. And what Sylvia Earle told me is that Number one, all the water on the planet now, all the fish in that water are now polluted yeah. because she said the fishing industry has kept up with technology like space technology, and they're able to do what she calls industrial level fishing. So number yeah. one, they're taking more fish out of the ocean than the fish can reproduce, and number two, and this was just startling, she said their nets, which are hundreds of yards long, when they're used up, they dump them over the side. And so the oceans are full of plastic, which breaks down, which the fish 
are eating. And she said, fish all over the world have had autopsies done on them and they contain plastic. And soon after she told me this, I read in the newspapers here that they are starting to find plastic in people's stomachs when they do autopsies, you know, after they've died. They're starting to find plastic in um, fetuses, in babies. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And also the mercury levels in fish. And and yeah, the destruction, the destruction of the ocean. I, you know, I live in a very affluent country. I have, I'm privileged to to be able to choose whatever food I want to eat, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna make the right choices for me, and hopefully for the rest of the world. Is there such a thing as organic food where you are? Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. I eat organic food. Yeah, I buy organic food, and in London, I'm not living in London at the moment. We kind of go backwards and forwards. Bizarrely, because my mum lives in the countryside, so she's surrounded with supermarkets. Obviously, everything's shut down because of the supermarkets. And I'm in central London, and there's an organic shop times four in my local area of about a square mile. I do live in a posh part of London. Um, and there's an organic uh, farmer's market on a Saturday. So it's crazy. So, yes, I always eat organic. I'll tell you what then happened with the Sylvia Earle with me with meat. Yeah. Uh, I, I was eating fish. I was mostly, we're mostly plant-based, over 90%, but we were mm. eating fish and sometimes organic meat and not much, but occasionally. And then we see this movie with Sylvia Earle in it and she's showing how the rainforests and forests all over the world are being cut down. I was aware of that, but I thought they were being cut down for commercial use, for housing and roads. As it turns out, what she's saying is they're being cut down so that they can grow grain to yeah. feed cows because yeah. we've gotten the world eating so much cow meat. Yeah, so much so, beef. So much beef, but we need more pr land to grow the food for the beef. She said 70% of the grain grown on the planet is used mm -hmm. to feed cows, not human beings. Yeah. And you know how much protein you need a day? You know how much, if you're going to talk about animal protein you need a day, it's absolutely tiny. But we've been fed a story that we need, particularly for, you know, a kind of like male patriarchal culture, that we need to eat protein and it's got to be meat and you've got to have loads of it. Um, and you get protein from everything. Protein is in everything. What we need is more veg and less pesticides and less damage. What do we need, about a 100 grams of protein a day, about three ounces? It's, it's something like that, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I think but so. You can, get, you, you can get those proteins from, from pulses. You can get protein in broccoli. I mean, you can get protein everywhere. And another thing, which I don't say so much on my podcast because I'm aware of some, a lot of the community that I support, is that we all eat too much. We consume far too much. I'm not talking about the psychology of overeating, but it's we're out of control, I think. Why are you hesitant to talk about overeating? You think it might be offensive to some people? No, it's not that I'm, I'm talking about overeating as being offensive. I'm talking about more about restricting, saying we're eating too much. So I will get comments saying that was triggering because if you're talking about, you know, I interview people who've been very anorexic or, or struggled. So I try and stay away from diet and what people eat. I t tend to talk more about psychology and some politics. But I'm going to say it now. We consume too much. We eat far too much food. We eat far too much of the wrong food or food that isn't food, but we're told I've it's never, food. I've never researched these numbers for the United Kingdom, 
but I have in the United for the United States. And presently, Gemma, 72% of us here in the United States are obese or overweight. 72%. It is, it is, it is prophesized. Actually, that's not the right word. It, there's a statistical probability statement that one out of three children presently born in the United States will have diabetes at this rate. It's mm. it's dramatic. And yeah. my colleague, my colleagues in statistics, they're saying that by the year 2030, 87% of America will be obese or overweight. So my question would be, what that 70%, let's say it's 70%, what do they eat? What do they, what, what is their food? What do they call food? What are they able to afford? Because also being able to afford, let's say, um, or, or certainly organic food is very costly. So we're also talking about disenfranchised communities and poverty and availability of nutritious food. Yeah, let's call it nutritious. So what is that diet? Because if that diet is a processed diet, then yeah, because it's not food, is it? We know it's not food, but we're told it's food. How do you promote healing on your broadcast, Gemma? Through the modality of talking, of sharing stories, of opening up the conversation. I talk about psychotherapy. I talk about people being supported within the community. I talk about energetic healing. I talk about acupuncture. I talk about whatever comes up, whatever is um, supportive, whatever supports that person or that story. You'll forgive me because I haven't heard your broadcast yet, but do you, do people call in or do you interview? Tell me a little about it, please. So we work in seasons. We've just finished, we're just about to wrap up season five. There's about 12, 13 guests in each season. Season one started off with six and we invite someone on and I ask one question at the beginning of the interview, which is food, friend or foe. And then we go from there and we have a spontaneous chat about that person's relationship with food, whether it is a friend, whether it is a foe. Lots of guests who come on have had severe food disorders, anorexia, bulimia, overeating, other things, obviously. And then we get on to the other things, the reasons why. And then after about 45, 50 minutes, we finish. I always ask a question, what five foods would you take to an island of any choice? Which is always the hardest question. Everyone goes, oh my God, what kind of island? I say, it's your island. Yeah, but what's the climate? I don't care. It's your climate. What foods would you take? So that's what we do. And um, yeah, it's just a conversation. It's just, and I try and pick, well, I, either people approach me or actually, yeah, people approach me. And if it's it's right, they come on and we, we have a chat. And it's to create, I'm going to use another food analogy, but like a smorgasbord of stories for people so that people can come along to the podcast and they can go, oh, I'm going to listen to episode 15 because that looks like it might be relevant to me. Because lots of people suffer in silence. Lots of people don't have any support. There's an epidemic of food disorders, particularly among kids at the moment in the UK. I'm sure there is in the States. Post the pandemic, um, there's lots of older people who've never had any support. And now they're older and they're thinking, well, I've had this for years and nothing's going to change. So I'm trying to open up the conversation and um, have something for everybody. I love the questions that you ask. The first one is easy. I, tr you know, I'm making believe I'm a guest on your show, and no, food, please be food. Yes. Well, okay. Food, friend or foe? Uh, food yeah. is definitely definitely a friend. No question yeah. about that. Food is my friend. The next right. question: What are the five foods that I would take on an island 
I think that's a, <laughs> oh, I think that's a marvelous question, and you've got my head reeling. And, and, uh, I always say that you could, you know, tomorrow might be different because people go, oh, I don't know. Then people start taking market gardens and restaurants, which is a bit cheaty. But if it's been a really good interview, I'll let them. Well, I think my number one choice would be yogurt. Okay. Non, uh, uh, something like uh, oat yogurt, not not cow yogurt, but something made from from something some yogurt that's made from something else. I've been experimenting recently with different yogurts that are made okay. from, made from nuts, made from beans, and so on. I think okay. I think I think yogurt would be very high on my list. Um, What's uh, broccoli. Broccoli yes. came to mind as my second. I like broccoli. I, I, I love would, broccoli. Yes. So I would need a fire for the broccoli on the island so that I could cook it up a bit or or, or I like it a little grilled. Um, yeah, you can have for, a fire. For my third choice, boy, this is a terrific question. Nobody's ever asked this to me <laughs> of this before. What would my third? I've only got five things that I could eat. Wow. You can also go to any climate, any island. And I missed out a very important bit now that we're doing the guest bit is that you do have a store cupboard. So you have seasoning, you have olive oil, you have some bits and pieces. Oh, I do. I have some things like that to go with, huh? Yeah. Well, number three, gee, number three might be mangoes. Somehow mangoes came to mind, but I'd have to give that a lot of thought and maybe do some research. (laughs) I'm not sure because I'm not only going by what would taste great and what would look great and feel great in my mouth, but also... I've got to make sure I've got my nutrition covered with these five things. So yeah. I can't just pick all things that are just for the fun of it. No, you can't. Wow. Oh. So you've got yogurt, you've got mangoes, you've got broccoli. Surely you're going to take a loaf of bread. Um, I don't think I would take a loaf of bread. I don't. Okay. Okay. I would be, te- I would be, if, I, if anything, I would be tempted to take granola because it has oh. dif- different kinds of nuts and grains and, and so on in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it goes beautifully with, um, uh, with yogurt. Broccoli. With yogurt, yeah, yes. m- Mango, broccoli, yogurt, granola, granola. and, oh, let's see what else. Oh, boy. It's tricky, isn't it? I, it is. I think I'd probably go with red onions. Ah, I thought you were going to say red wine then. Okay, red onions. Delicious. Red onions. Yeah. I thought about uh, a, a, a wine, but... but uh, well, that's another thing we've pretty much totally given up because the, the research consistently on alcohol is that it's really bad for us. It's toxic to the human system. I, I, I've is. known that. I've known that for years. It's, it's a lot of fun to drink with meals, wine, and so on, but it's, it's really not good for us. So I, I wouldn't take a, uh, an alcoholic beverage as one of the five. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that thing about alcohol, because also when you're when you're menopausal, alcohol is very dif- dif- different for women to metabolize. Not every woman, but most women. And I found that my metabolizing of alcohol was pretty rubbish from the get go. It didn't stop me from drinking vast quantities and doing all sorts of other things. But particularly in the last four or five years, I'll wake up in the middle of the night, you know, when the liver's dumping all the sugar into your bloodstream and I'm wide awake and my heart's racing. So it's kind of, it's not 
quite as enjoyable as, as it used to be. But I do still like a little bit of natural wine or maybe the odd whiskey. But it's moderation, isn't it? I think moderation and also the intention, the intention with which you put some food or a drink into your body. It has to be conscious and the intention has to be felt and thought about. And I think that transforms it. It's not just a physical experience. <laughs> That's, I, I'm laughing when you say it transforms it because... There's a famous story about the Aga Khan at one time, and mm. he was being interviewed by the press. And of course, he's the leader of, uh, you know, it uh, was the leader of, of hundreds of millions of people and who don't drink alcohol by their religion. And during the interview, uh, he was sitting there and he was drinking a glass of uh, very expensive scotch. And the interviewer said to him, well, how is it that you're the leader of so many people and nobody drinks alcohol by religion and you're sitting here and drinking alcohol? And he looked at the uh, reporter with a smile and he said, I'm so close to God that when the alcohol touches my lips, it turns to water. (laughs) Great response. I I thought you'd enjoy that story. So let's talk about cultural differences regarding Mm. food in the United States and the United Kingdom. Okay. Let's see if we can share some stories about the cultural differences. Is, Is food a big topic of conversation? Is nutrition a a topic of conversation in the United Kingdom? Are there safeguards like here in the States now, finally, every package, every package of food has to have on it the breakdown of protein, carbohydrate, and fat, and the number of calories, and they have to tell you what's in, what's been added to the food. Is that true in England as well? Yeah, that food labeling and breakdown has been going on for quite some time. There's there's an issue, particularly amongst the eating disorder community, that some restaurants are putting the calorie count of their meals on the menu. And that's causing a real problem for people in the eating disorder community because they say that they find it, this is the modern word, isn't it? They find it very triggering. And I agree. But if you speak to someone who doesn't have a food disorder, and I have, they say, oh, we find it really useful because we don't want to take in that amount of calories because calorie is still the normal argument that's peddled. Um, But as far as There's an awful lot of talk at the moment about kids with eating disorders, lack of government funding, the NHS being overrun, um, and people not being able to find the right support. There's also talk about when are the supermarkets going to sell vegetables that are uh, nutritious and and cheap to buy instead of putting all the sweets and the chocolates at the front by the tills. You know, so you have cigarettes now in the UK and you can't, they're all boarded up and they're behind the, the cashiers. But if you went into a supermarket in the UK, and I imagine it's very similar in the States, and I've, well, I know it's similar in the States, you have aisle after aisle of processed food and crisps, more chips, potato chips, chocolates, ready meals, you know, all beautifully packaged and branded. And you think, oh, that looks fantastic. But it's just the same old crap being regurgitated into a different form. And then you'll have yes. a small vegetable section. And if you are in, an, in a not so affluent area, because it's, I think it's about economics, when you're talking about the culture of food, then there won't be any organic section. But if you go to a nice area, nice area, whatever that means, there will be an organic food section. 
because it seems that you can only eat well if you have a bit of cash and if you have some money. But I think as a part of the food culture also is that lots of people eat out all the time. So they will buy their breakfast from a takeout place and they'll do the same for lunch. They'll have a sandwich and then they'll do the same for dinner. Lots of people don't cook. I mean, I'm generalizing. I don't know the figures. It's just from the conversations that I have with younger people. I'm surprised at the amount of younger people who, who can't cook. It sounds like the identical situation that we have yeah. in this country, Gemma, whereby the people of the lowest socioeconomic classes are oppressed by lack of, of, of ability to be able to source highly nutritious uh, food for themselves and are stuck yeah. with all the things that you mentioned that are yeah. near the cash register, which yeah. re reminds me that I hope you don't mind me outing you. I'm not sure I am outing you with this question. In the United States, the word Hershey is associated with chocolate <laughs> bars. And you're, you're, although I can't see you anymore because we lost the, the video transmission, I, I know from before the interview that you're wearing the, uh, a, a, a beautiful sweater and it has the word Hershey across the front. Does Hershey have different meaning in England? No, this is so true. You've outed me. I'm being ironic. I tell you what happened. <laughs> and Hershey's isn't the, you know, it's not the best chocolate, is it? Um, I went, was in, I walked past a shop the other day, a little independent shop, and I went in and it had a blue hoodie that was my size because it was quite small. And I put it on and thought, this is great. And then I looked in the mirror and I thought, what does it say? Oh, it says Hershey's. Oh, well, that's okay. I don't like Hershey's anyway. <laughs> I bought it. <laughs> yeah. So yes, it is. It's about don't feed people properly because then they won't be able to take on the system. I mean, that's a bit basic, isn't it? But if you can buy something for 99p or a breakfast for, I don't know, $1.50 or whatever, and you don't have any money and you can't, you can't cook for yourself because you haven't got the facilities or the ability, then you're going to buy something cheap and something that's going to stimulate your palate, which is going to be over-salted, over-sugared, and it's going to fill you up for a little while. I'm getting depressed. I know that I am, really, because I'm hearing, and, and, and I've gotten waves of this. I mean, of course, I read about United Kingdom some. It's not like I ignore it totally because it's so far away. But mm. I, don't, I don't feel like I really know details about the uh, socioeconomics there as I do in this country. But here, we're in a situation, Gemma, where 60% of the country now are living week to week on their paychecks. And if they lose a paycheck, they're in very deep trouble. Yeah. We, we, we have had over the last 30 years or maybe a little bit more, probably started with that uh, alcoholic president that we had, Richard Nixon. Uh, mm. We have had a socioeconomic stratification that is um, breathtaking. It is absolutely breathtaking. The middle class have, in the words of one of the Kennedys, he, he said, the middle class has been hollowed out. And it's a time in history where the middle class is being pushed down. Uh, you know, we sort of break up the classes, l lower, lower, middle, lower, upper, lower, lower, middle, 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 upper, middle, you know, three, three designations for each of the three classes. Mm -hmm. And the, the middle, middle, and the upper middle are being pushed down, and the lower middle is being pushed into the lower class, 
everything is being pushed down while those at the top are accumulating more. So it's a double whammy with the, with people being pushed down while others are being pushed up at the exact same time. And I mean, I don't claim to have any idea where it's going to end, but I can tell you that what I learned in school was that when you have this amount of socioeconomic stratification, it ends up in revolution or civil war or problems because there's only a certain amount that the lower levels can take before they uh, of desperation before they explode. Yeah, I think that's starting to happen though. Um, I'm just and I, I will go back to that, but I'm just thinking as as you were talking, I, I'm just thinking about the value that we place on food, and we don't place value on it because it's cheap, and so therefore, by definition, it doesn't have much value. And I'm also thinking about our food culture. And we borrow, obviously, from, well, we borrow a lot from the States. We get a lot from the States that we borrow from the rest of Europe. You know, I'm thinking it's a cliche, but Italy, Spain, France, they have a very definite aspirational food culture. It's also very different living in London because you've got all the restaurants, you've got all the chefs, you know, it's that whole sort of super chef kind of thing, can't think of the word, the rise that happened a few years ago. And they were all putting, or interestingly, they were all putting traditionally working class food on their restaurant tables like, I don't know, pig's trotters and cabbages and eels and, you know. And then people were going to pay, people, middle class, upper class people were paying a lot of money for it. So I don't know what I'm trying to say. I'm just talking about, I'm also thinking about how you kind of like opiate the masses, you know, like mass television, like not very stimulating telly. And consumerism, it's all a way, and, and poor quality, non-nutritious food. It's all a way of opiating the masses, as you're saying, and keeping everyone inactive. But at some point, that pressure, it, something will explode. But I do think it's starting to happen in various ways over here. Mm-hmm. It's such a vast topic to talk about. It is. It's, it, it's and hard it's to a, hold on to a thread. It is, and it's a scary topic to hold on to as well. Tell me, are you comfortable with the food supply chain in England, or are there rumblings of concern that there could be a breakdown in the food chain supply? Yeah, there will be. I think lots of people, maybe myself included, will have problems. I will probably buy a little bit extra and have it in the cupboard this winter. But for sure, what with the Ukraine and the change around with the grain in the last couple of days um, and the cl- and climate change, I mean, yeah. And what I'll tell you what depresses me when you sat there five minutes ago and went, I'm starting to feel depressed. What depresses me are, are the lack of intelligent governmental voices and the lack of intelligent decision makers because everyone's so caught up in the economy and looking after themselves. And I'm thinking, where where are all the intelligent negotiators? Where is everyone talking about how we can, I don't know, grow food in our communal public land? You know, like in, in the Second World War in, in Hyde Park in the middle of London, half of it was turned over to grow vegetables. So we have quite a lot of land in London, as you know, and in the and obviously sort of the rural UK. But we have parkland. Why can't you have community initiatives where you grow vegetables and then they're given out for free to, I the, think to that's the locals? A, I think that's a sterling idea. I think that's a really sterling idea. And and, and then and why I, can't you, sorry. In this country, we did the same thing during World War II. We called them victory gardens. 
And everybody yeah. had a little little garden at their house. Yeah. And then why can't you? Why can't you, or the landlords, why can't you, when there's an empty shop, of which there are plenty, or empty office spaces in the UK, make sure that you keep your rents really, really low for the first couple of years and you let small independent food businesses start up and you support them within the community and you take the power back from the multinationals. You still have the multinationals, but you've got to learn. It's also about a culture of sharing, isn't it? Because it's unsustainable what we're doing. And so on a, on a high street, I can't, I can't believe I ended up sounding like my father who he's to critical when I was a kid because he was very conservative. But on a high street, you would have, you know, you'd have your butcher, your baker, your cabinet candlestick maker, you'd have your, your greengrocer, and you would have enough to sustain your community because it's about sustaining the local community. If your local community is sustained by osmosis, the larger community is also going to be sustained. So maybe we're talking about globalization and whether it's worked or it hasn't. It clearly doesn't for lots of people, does it? No, it's clearly not working for people. It's destroying everything. Yeah. So I think it's Let's, about value. Well, it's gone. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Yes. Yes. About value. About what do we really value in this life and what's meaningful and what's important to us. And yeah. to the to the listeners, it sounds to me like a lot of the listeners of your broadcast are people who are dealing with issues around food, correct? Yeah, that is correct. And do they comment to you when you talk about the fact that you're a plant-based eater? And do, they, do you get support for that or do you get criticism? How do your listeners uh, handle and And how do they communicate with you, Gemma? Do they call you on the phone or send emails? How do your listeners communicate with you? Through Instagram, through our at this at love this food thing on Instagram. We have a website which is called lovethisfoodthing.com where people are encouraged to write in. They comment on the Instagram page. Um, I have only interviewed vegans. I interviewed a vegan chef last week. I do have I haven't had any debates like this on the podcast. I tend to prod people for their own personal story. And I was thinking the other day, would I have someone on who worked in an abattoir? And I just thought, I'm not sure I could. Maybe I should, but I'm not sure I could. Because I've had those arguments over the years with people. I'm like, do I want to have them? So do they comment on me? No, not really. Um, no, maybe it's because I keep it to 45, 50 minutes. Maybe they don't get a chance. Maybe I need to extend the interview. But they, they, but they do make comments on Instagram. So you have a, a communication going on amongst the, yeah. amongst the listeners and they can read what each other says and help one another. Correct? Yeah. 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 And we're slowly building a community of like-minded people. Yes. We've not been going very long. So our website is new. We're starting to make videos. I'm starting, to, I'm just about to record a, a kind of recovery video series, which I hope will be done and out by Christmas. Oh, that's terrific. Yeah, yeah. I, we added the video part to the podcast sometime, I think, in the last year or so, and we try to get some of the videos up. I, I think it's helpful because there are some people who'd rather, you know, they'd like to see a face or they'd like, of course, we, you know, we've become talking heads on a podcast. Mm. It's not like you see a lot of interesting stuff. I think that's unfortunate. No, no, no. I was just going to say, yeah, we, we also, I made quite a few videos with people. I did five minute, 10 minute videos, posted them on, on, them on Instagram and they're also on our website. I've realized 
sadly, because I do it myself, that people tend not to watch a five or 10 minute video. So we've started making tiny videos. I've even just joined TikTok and I'm going to make 10, 20 second videos. Really? Tell me. Yeah. I'm going to make little movies for 10, 20 seconds with a tiny bit of dialogue that you can't hear, but just comes up on the screen. Oh, I hope hope you'll... Tell me how to access. I would love to see what you do in a 20-second video. That's phenomenal. Yeah. Well, we've just started. And I've been writing quotes, and I'm trying to write inspirational quotes because you can go on Uh Instagram, as I'm sure you know, and there's so much content. It's overwhelming. Overwhelming how much stuff there is, even from our page. I was writing my show notes, and I was writing, you know, I was writing three, four paragraphs, and I thought, actually... I'm just going to nail it. I've got a background in advertising and voiceovers. I'm just going to say what I want to say, try and say it in about, I don't know, 40 words, and then I'm done. So I've kind of like given in. 40, you have 40 words and you're done. <laughs> and here, I, <laughs> and my broadcast, look, we're doing, we're already at an hour. We're going over. I told you I often go an hour, an hour and a half. I'm, I yeah, guess I'm, li- when it, I'm living in, I'm living in the middle ages on these things. I, no, I've got to no, stop. because I, when it's good, it's good, right? So you keep going. Well, <laughs> you've given me pause and a lot to think about, Gemma. 22nd <laughs> broadcast. Wow. That is phenomenal. Well, we were we were making little promotional videos for the podcast episodes and I was doing it with the guest and it was too long because, and I have a young person doing my social media for me and I have, I've spoken to other people. I was speaking to my agent and she'd got a young person in to do the social media and it's like, it's swiping, it's quick, it's instant. You have to be, your attention has to be caught instantly. And so even though I love to make videos and talk and, and chew the cud, I realized that I might be making more work for myself. And also everything I do is self-funded. So I'm trying to hone it and, and make it more of a lean a lean machine. Well, that's something else we have in common. Everything I do is self-funded as well. And wow. so far, the, the only funds that come in have come in a little bit from my books because one, wow, of, my area, okay. one of my areas of specialty is psychedelic medicine. And uh, mm. so I... I uh, I have one book out called Psychedelic Medicine, and, and I have several others coming out very soon on psychedelic medicine. And uh, maybe for, a, for another time in the future, you and I will talk about the place of uh, psychedelic medicine with regard to our uh, attitudes about uh, what we ingest and how we ingest it and what we do with it. A hundred percent. Yeah, I can talk about that. <laughs> yeah, very interesting, very interesting area. But feels like we're very behind, right? Well, we are behind in the sense that because of the United States, there's been a worldwide suppression of research for over 50 years. But I'm pleased to say on your behalf that the present renaissance that's going on worldwide in, in psychedelic uh, research was pretty much started in England, as w- in the United States with Rick Doblin and at MAPS, but also with the Countess Amanda Fielding in London, who has mm-hmm. done phenomenal work at spearheading the Renaissance because, you know, she has a research organization and because of her, you know, her, her stature in, in England, she's been able to talk to high uh, ranking people in the government for many years. And so there have been some incremental changes going on. Yeah, it's very exciting. I wonder what medicine will look like in 60 years, psychological medicine or 
how we treat our mental health, how we look after ourselves in that way. Yeah, we're still in the dark ages. Mm -hmm. We are. I'm going to ask you to take a pause now, and you can literally pause if you like. And while you pause, I'm going to ask you to reflect on the on the following question. If we ended right now, and in five minutes, it comes into your head something like, oh, gee, I wish I would have said this. I'd like to pause and have you think about what you might want to say that you didn't say, particularly to your American listeners. Would you like me to pause or can I just talk? You, either way, if you don't need a pause, you're ready to go, please go for it. Love it. Yeah. I would like to invite any American listener who is interested in food and our relationship with food and how it affects our behavior in all its varied ways to either look me up on our website, lovethisfoodthing.com or go to our Instagram page at lovethisfoodthing and listen and choose, choose a guest to listen to and listen to the podcast. Not all of them, because I'm sure you have a life. And if you would like to contact me, please do. Anyone who would like to be a guest on the podcast who has something to say, please write in through our submission form on the website or you can DM me on Instagram, Gemma with a J. Yeah. And if you like what you hear or you like what you read, I also write blogs, then, you know, just pass it on. But yeah, just have a look. If you if you have a moment and you're interested, have a look and see what we're up to. I think that's what I'd like to say, Richard. Thank you, Gemma. And thank you very much for being today's guest on Mind, Body, Health and Politics. Folks, you heard her. That's Gemma Richards coming to us from the United Kingdom. Love This Food Thing is the name of her program. And as you heard, you can reach her on Instagram. I hope you will. And thank you all for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health and Politics. Please tune in again next week when we're going to have another interesting guest, as we always do. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Mm